Good morning, friends. It is Gary Morris from the Level Up series and the DLC group of companies. It is Thursday, October 15th, and I am uh, super excited this morning to be hosting this Level Up series call uh, with someone I hold in immense uh, regard, someone who I think has been at the very forefront of sales and marketing training for many, many, many years. Uh, my guest this morning, Mr. Jeffrey Fox, uh, has been a best-selling author of more than 11 or 12 books personally, and then he's done some ghostwriting work. Uh, his books today have been uh, translated into more than uh, 40 languages. Uh, Jeffrey is a speaker. He's an executive coach. He's a lecturer. Uh, he has many training programs uh, for some of the largest um, you know, organizations where he specializes in uh, marketing, uh, sales training, and leadership. Jeffrey spends most of his time uh, now between Connecticut and a apparently an incredible uh, place called uh, Upper, it's an Upper Kativa Island in uh, Florida. And he's got uh, three children and three grandkids. Jeffrey, I'm so excited to have you here. Good morning. Good morning. How are things in How are things in Connecticut? Gorgeous today. Gorgeous fall. I'm overlooking the Connecticut River as I'm speaking to all of you folks. Interesting. Now, has uh, has your world? Uh, and I guess you know, as a as an author, uh, you probably spend a lot of time yourself and are very introspective. But has your world changed uh, during COVID nineteen? The vibe, how you spend your time, how you operate day to day, or is it relatively status quo? Well, the good news is that Zoom exists. So I've been able to replace 100 million miles of airplane flights and all that jazz with Zoom with a lot of our clients. And we're getting very good at using Zoom. And so that's the good news. According to my wife, I'm not, I'm, I'm home more, which is, I guess, good. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because it's funny. Uh, our organization in Canada, you know, during a very difficult time uh, with the pandemic, uh, we're actually having record years in the Canadian finance. And, you know, I sort of relate that to maybe, you know, um, you know, you have kind of survivor's guilt and you feel like you almost shouldn't. But I, I look at it and think like there's a silver lining in every tragedy. And oh, yeah. one of those silver linings you've just actually uh, referred to, we've become much better with digital conferencing. So because of that, we're more efficient. The sales cycle is shorter. We're communicating more frequently. I think in many ways it's making all of us uh, take that leap and become much better. Oh, yeah. You know, what's interesting is that some people take COVID and all these other. There's always something. There's always a COVID. Right. There's a recession. There's this. And some people hunker down and some people sally forth into the fray. And those who, whether it's on email or voice to voice or face, whatever, those who are out there selling win more than those are who get caught up in it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Well, before we start uh, and jump right in today uh, to all of uh, the DLC, MCC, MA networks, to everyone in the Canadian finance space, to anyone who's maybe watching this on uh, live stream, uh, this is a series that we try to do a couple of times a month and we always feature uh, amazing guests and, you know, the the... Um, the focus for us is always to try to help, you know, uh, make people better and, and make us better at what we do and better communicators and, and better in, in business. Um, this is open to anyone on a live stream. You don't have to be with us. 
Uh, if you make a comment online or post a question, we are going to uh, choose 50 of you uh, that have sent questions in or made comments or shared it with a friend. And my assistant Tara is going to make sure all of you get one of Jeffrey's uh, book. This is actually one of my favorite books Jeffrey has ever written. I think it was written in 2001. We started our company in 2006. Um, and the Rainmaker's Credo has been a big part of my life. We're going to talk about that uh, today. So if you're all there and you do have questions, I mean, you have uh, someone who has made a created a very illustrious career on sales and marketing. And what I love best about uh, Jeffrey and his communication and his writing style is that it's no nonsense. It is blunt. It is tell it as it is. It is call you out. Um, and I think that's very refreshing. So um, super excited about that. Um, Jeffrey, we can sort of jump right in. But before we do, I would love to hear just to set the stage about sort of like how you're raised, your uh, upbringing. I know I read somewhere that you watched Mickey Mantle, um, you know, play baseball in in uh, Yankee Stadium and hit some home runs. Can you give us kind of a maybe uh, the the history of you, where you grew up, went to school, how you got and became an author, and uh, tell us about Mickey Mantle. Well, yeah, I you know I grew up in a small town and uh, single mom kind of deal, right? And so in Connecticut, New York City is like two hours away. Uh, so myself and another guy used to hitchhike down to New York City, literally. Go to a Yankee game, then take the subway down, stay up all night, take the subway down to uh, Greenwich Village. I saw Bob Dylan when he first started passing the hat. So I had a, a very great uh, unsupervised, single mom kind of thing, unsupervised childhood. Yeah. But I think with when I saw Mantle, he was, the, of course, the greatest player ever lived. And if he had taken care of himself, he would have been even better. You know, a switch hitter, could hit like crazy. He was amazing. But the Yankees have a – Yankees, which is maybe relevant to this audience, you know, their deal is we're here to win. Somebody got traded from the Yankees uh, two years ago. And someone said to him, you know, what's it like being traded? He said, oh, so thrilled. All they think about back there is winning. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So crazy. Yeah. So so watching, I think, you know, as growing up, I was a big reader of biographies of great people and watched great people and um, you know, never judgmental about their own personal life, but rather about their performance and skills and so forth. I tell you a story I thought of them. This is kind of weird maybe, but I grew up in my first, first, when I was little, like five years old, six years old, I think it was five. Uh, we lived, my family lived in the top third floor of a, of a remodeled mansion on a street in Hartford, Connecticut. And some of the other mansions were still mansions. People lived there. And we had a snowstorm, maybe a quarter of an inch, half an inch, whatever. And so I went to the mansion next door. I was five. I went to the mansion next door. It was my first sale with a uh, shovel. And I shoveled off a couple of steps on the mansion's front. And this woman opened the door, and I thought she was, like, you know, ancient. She's probably about 30. And uh, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm shoveling the snow off your walk, uh, your steps. And she said, why? And I said, so you won't fall. And she goes, what do you want? I said, 50 cents. And so closed the door, came back a few minutes later and said, here's your 50 cents. That was my first sale. Crazy. Unbelievable. You know, I, I love the answer, though. There's a lesson in that answer. What, right? You know, why? So you don't slip and fall. It wasn't right. because I want to make money. You solved the problem for her. 
50 cents versus a fall, the dollarized value is priceless. Unbelievable, you know, so uh, so incredible. So you grew up uh, there and you, you went to the Yankee Stadium and did you go to uh, university? I think you went to- I went uh, to, I, I was a capital area scholar uh, at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. And after college, I went directly to Harvard Business School. Um, and then I did a stint, um, which I hated, uh, in the Army and then, uh, you know, went to work. Awesome. Well, listen, I want to um, just sort of tell the listeners uh, how our morning started. So this call is at 11 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, uh, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time in Ontario, of course. And you wanted to call this morning at 8 a.m. Pacific, three hours before our scheduled call. And, you know, as as you, you know, speak about in your books, but in The Rainmaker, you talk about, you know, setting the appointment uh, and the, the, the pre-call, you know, sort of uh, requirements and work to prepare for every single conversation with a client or customer. And, you know, here you are many years later, you know, uh, with 11 best-selling books behind you and you demanded a call this morning at eight o'clock and all you cared about Jeffrey was us okay who am I speaking to and what is the message and what products do they carry and do they compete with the banks or do they work with the banks and do they compete against each other and explain to me about the business Gary and I thought that was so incredible right like you were doing your homework um, you know via that pre-call and I know you talk about the preparation and everything you do in business and it's funny because you know, you quote in the book, it says 90% of all sales calls are won or lost before you speak to or see the customer for the first time. And it's funny because most people who have been in business for a long time and who are good at what they do, they stop doing pre-calls because they think their experience is a substitute for the pre-call planning. Can you, you know, speak to that please and, and just remind us how important that is and why you do it and what you're trying to, you know, garner from that pre-call and you know, because obviously, I mean, you're 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 living it. Well, just to reiterate, all sales that are written between salespeople and customers, ninety percent of those are won or lost in pre-call planning. That's just the way it is. So, if those watching this show do not pre-call plan, you're not making as much money as you could. And those of you who are pre-call planning, the more you do it, the more diligent you become, the, the higher your hit rate will be. So it's it's kind of it's it's so basic. If you watch uh, the National Football League, you'll see the guys on the sideline, the coaches, and they have a they have a a, a a board with all kinds of stuff on it. Those are all pre-call plans. You know, it's two minutes ago, and I'm on the eight-yard line. The score is blah blah blah. They have a plan for that, mm -hmm. and so pre-call planning is a hallmark of the rainmaker. Those uh, those of you out there, and there none of you, of course, but present company excluded, there are salespeople who think, I've been in this business for 50 years, 30 years, 20 years. I know it all. I've been salesman of the year. I know it all. Those guys are not going to be in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. You must pre-call plan. I treat every sales call on a customer as a first sales call. So you've been doing business with a client for 20 years. What's happened in that 20 years? Their bosses have changed. Their family life has changed. Their budgets have changed. Their salaries have changed. Everything's changed. And, and that means that the customer is different. So you treat every sales call as a first sales call. You will be better prepared. You'll be listening more. You'll be asking more questions. And you won't wing it. You're not going to be casual. You're not going to be nonchalant. Selling is a profession. 
it is not, it, it, a lot of people don't realize it's a profession because to become a salesperson, all you have to do is fog a mirror and you get in many places or jump higher in a Galapagos turtle. But the great salespeople, the rainmakers, the top 5%, they look at it as a profession. Yeah. All professionals practice and pre-call plan. Yeah, well, you talk about in your books, you know, you talk about NFL coaches, right? You know, I mean, they study uh, and look at game film between, you know, before every game and they prepare for how that team played last week and what they could possibly, you know, come up with that that is new. Um, so when you talk about the pre-call, let's just drill down on that a little bit. Today, it's it's great because you can learn so much on the internet. You can, you know, Google everyone. You can find out their social media and, and profiles and you can find out what's going on. But do you also mean like go back to the, if they're a past customer, go back to the original file, remind yourself right. of their family makeup, uh, yeah. when the last time you did it, what area they live in. So it's very important, obviously, to keep intimate notes then on all of your clients because if you have to go back, the more you can relate by, you know, sharing an experience or something that you remember from a, a previous uh, interaction, the more powerful it would be. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So let's take that. Let's just take what you just said, the client file. Okay, so a guy uh, makes a deal five years ago with a client. Well, with the, I don't know what the average turnover of houses in Canada and U.S. is about seven years. That means made a deal with a guy five years ago, two years hence, they're going to be possibly buying, moving, selling, whatever. So you go back and you look at your file. Hopefully, you've put in the file, not just what you learned pre and during the selling process, but why they bought. Mm-hmm. Why did they buy? Because they like the house facing south or whatever. So you And you should keep that file up to date because they're a guaranteed customer. If, in fact, they are going to move or whatever within a year or two, if you're in front of them, if you're keeping contact, they're going to call you. And so that that file, which I call a customer value file, is critical. That's where really good salespeople make it. You know, They don't try to get every single new customer because the existing customers, the past customers, are really – are really the huge basis for new deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that before and I'll just sort of um, translate it to, to our space. I've said to people, listen, you know, the the customers that we've done business with in the past, um, you know, if you want a customer for life, you have to talk to them for life and you have to stay in touch with them. Mm-hmm. And they already know us. They, they've had experience with us. They know our product. Uh, the sales cycle is uh, shorter. Uh, you know, they uh, refer more often, the cost of acquisition is is less. Um, but yet, you know, so many of us are chasing new transactions all the time and new relationships. And, you know, new, obviously, um, you know, water into into the stream, you know, is, is important. But the the you know, the value of the existing database uh is is that much more important maybe just talk and extrapolate on that a little bit because you know i know in your books you always say like you know you've done business with a customer you have a relationship how do we you know set the next appointment to do more business or to you know uh, get an introduction well there's a difference between new clients and new deals Mm -hmm. so you can do lots of new deals new transactions with prior customers especially if you're always asking the customer for a referral. I'll give you a specific illustration. Um, a friend of mine started, he, he sold a business and as a hobby, he wanted to become a car salesperson of all people. But he loved cars. He was crazy about cars, especially um, exotic cars or, or high value cars. So he said to me, what should I do? 
So I said, well, you take your, your contact list, your Rolodex, whatever you want to call it, and let everybody know you're now going to be selling the soldier of the business. You're going to be selling these cars. So what I told him to do and what he did do, and now he's the number, he was the number one salesman for Mercedes in the country. Wow. Like in, like in weeks. Wow. He said to everybody he sold a car to. I said, call them on Monday after the week. If you sold them on Monday, call them next Monday. Call them on Sunday, call them the next Monday. Call the guy up and you say, hey, how do you like the car? I love it. I said, tell me if I can ask you a question. Is there anybody I can call, a friend of yours, a family member? I will give them the same deal I gave you. Now, because the customer is so satisfied, got such a great deal, regardless of what they think, they're always going to give you a name or two. And from that referral list, which we'll talk about more today, is how you build a business. There's nothing stronger than a satisfied, happy customer telling somebody else, I did business with Joe. This guy's the real deal. I did business with Jane. You can, you can count on her. That's how you get business. Love it. I want to, uh, I want to jump in and I want to read uh, a paragraph from uh, the book, How to Become a Rainmaker. And um, anyone on this call, Jeffrey's got some incredible books. I mean, they're all awesome. Uh, I got two or three on my desk here that I, I also uh, loved, How to Become a CEO. And this one, too, How to Become a Fierce Competitor is incredible. Um, but this is, 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 this is uh, ground zero. I want to read this to you. It's Obey Marketing's First Commandment. And it says, the first commandment of getting and keeping customers is to treat each customer as you would treat yourself. Do you like to be overcharged? Do you like to be underserved? Do you like to be put on endless hold, overbooked, told your room isn't ready, falsely promised, shipped late, ignored, not thanked? Always put yourself in the shoes of a good customer. Ask the question, what would I want if I were the customer? The answer is what you should strive to provide. I mean, that is at its very basic fundamental. That is a terrific starting point for every interaction with every client. Do you want to just uh, touch on that? Well, it's probably one of the old rules, you know, like from the Bible or something, uh, the golden rule, do unto others as you do unto yourself. Customers, you have to put customers in the situation you're in to understand. For example, I had a car that got mispainted. So I went to the dealership and very fancy place. And I said to somebody, can I talk to so-and-so where I can about my car painting? And the guy said, Hey, I just work here. I said, perchance I should talk to somebody who doesn't. So, <laughs> you know, it's, if you are, maybe the word is empathetic. I don't know what the words are these days, but if you put yourself in the shoes of the customer, you are going to be more impactful. You're going to be more empathetic. You're going to be more understood by the you must do exactly what you would do to yourself. So, for example, would you pay $10 more for a surgeon who's done the surgery 100 times or a guy that just came out of medical school? Not knocking the guy that came out of medical school. But, you know, what you want is what the customer wants. And should never be afraid of giving the customer that, nor afraid of pricing it to value, in my view. Mm -hmm. I'll tell a very similar story. I was buying a, a new boat a few years ago, a surfboat, and they're not cheap. 
And the boat that I wanted was out of a certain dealer in Kelowna. And I was referred to the owner of the dealership. And I went and saw him. His name was Don. And I said, I'm buying a new boat. I'm going to buy it right away. I'd really like to buy the Nautique. You're the Nautique dealer. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just really busy, Gary. Give me your number. I'll call you back later on today. So I said, no problem, Don. I'm only a few miles away. And, you know, that day went by and the next day went by and the third day went by. And I finally called him and I said, Don, I said, I really want to make a decision here. I'd love someone to take me on a late tour. And then it was, oh, yeah, I'll have Jeremy, our guy. Jeremy's going to call you. I'll get that done, you know, today. So Jeremy did call. We had a quick conversation. I asked him for a few things. He goes, I'll get back to you later on today. 24 hours later, he hadn't gotten back to me. Finally, I said to him, listen, I am not going to beg you to spend this kind of money. I said, if this is what you're treating me like now, you can't even respond to me. Then, you know, and I went and I bought a Supra. I bought a different, because the Supra dealer, the young guy was attentive, responded quickly, listened to my needs. Like, you know, said, Gary, you only have two months during the summer and breakdown, we'll be there same day service. And, you know, now here I am three years later and I'll probably be in a Supra, you know, forever because, you know, I love the experience. I want to, I want to, I want to read another you know, that's, That is such, that is so, what you just said, People are people in the audience are probably thinking, Jesus, what a dope that first dealership guy was. Right. Everybody in this audience, possible exceptions of five, have done that. Mm. They've all done that. Mm. And there and there's believe it or not, the reason the guy did it, the dealer did it, is deep down, there's a fear of rejection. A, a hungry new salesperson that doesn't know anything like the super kid, they don't realize it. So it's it's amazing how many people treat the customer unlike they would treat themselves. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you gave them a separate call, the fact that you uh, gave them an order, mm-hmm. and you didn't take it. It's like well, malpractice. Yeah, that's a great term for a malpractice. Well, and I think maybe it was a bit of this. I mean, he was, I was referred, personally introduced to the owner of, of the dealership from one of our franchise owners, a gentleman by the name of Jason Zalo, a very good friend of mine who loves boats and knows them really well. And I think that he maybe thought that I was a slam dunk because I was referred to him directly. You know, he's got the Nautique dealer. You know, he's the only one in the town. And I thought that he you know, maybe just thought that it was okay if he was slow to respond or dismissive or aloof or too busy. And it wasn't okay. And it was really funny and not to just, you know, I called him back, you know, a week later and said, I've gone with somebody else. Right. And he absolutely tore a strip off me. You're going to regret it. That's a terrible boat. And, and I said to him, Hey, Don, I said, let me tell you this. I said, the way you just responded, I said, shame on you. If I run my business this way, I said, I would never be in business. And, you know, to his credit, 24 hours later, he calmed down and called me back and he said, Gary, the way I handle myself, I am so sorry. He goes, that was absolutely terrible. I hope I get another chance someday and I'll make it better. So, you know, good for him, you know, for making the effort. But um, I want to read another, because it just, we're going to go into dollarization because this is a strategy that you've created that I just think is going to resonate so well. Before we do, because it, it speaks to the same thing we're speaking of now. If you're okay, I want to read another paragraph out of your book. Sure. It's so powerful. So treat everybody you meet as a potential client. Rainmakers see the world and everyone in it as their market. Rainmakers know the world is small. They know that everyone knows someone. They know that anyone can become a client or refer a client or recommend a client or scuttle a promising relationship. Rainmakers treat non-clients as they do existing customers. They are polite to everyone. Rainmakers view everyone as influential. Uh, They know that business can come from unexpected places. 
And, you know, that is to me like a lightning bolt because I see people that when they're in front of a customer, they're turning it on, but everywhere else, they, you know, there's somebody else. Can you speak to that as well? Let's say you're, let's say your kids are playing soccer, right? And you're at a soccer tournament of, and all the kids are from, you know, relatively good towns or whatever. So their parents are all uh, in business one way or another. They're executives of this or that. You can't stand on the sideline and scream at the ref. The ref could be the CEO, volunteer ref, CEO of a club. Everybody is an influencer or is a customer one way or another. And what do you have to lose by being nice to someone who isn't? Why, what, do you have to, what do you have to be? I went into a, a, a place in Avon, Connecticut, a little place called like Friendly's Ice Cream or something like that. And I saw this guy get up and pay his bill. $11, I found out later, $11.18. And he berated the young woman, probably high school, high school age, summertime. He berated her over something. Maybe the rasher of bacon wasn't thick enough, whatever. Right. And, and I went up there afterwards. And there were three other kids. This is, this is, I saw this myself. I think I put it in my book, but I'm not sure I did it this way. This girl was in tears and she was talking to these three other kids, two boys and a girl. They all went to the same high school. And coincidentally, three of them, one, one gal's mother was a psychiatrist and the other two kids, their fathers were doctors in Simsbury, Connecticut. And Simsbury, Connecticut, so the guy who did it can, if he's on the line, can remember I'm the one. That, he was a drug salesman from a pharmaceutical company. And he called on those four, three kids, families, parents, parents, uh, doctor, medical offices. And one kid said, I know that guy. I've seen him in my father's office. I'm calling my father right now. That was a high, high school kids working at, a, at an ice cream store. He lost four clients that day. Forever. Yeah. And just like your friend called you, like the guy in the boat, he doesn't yeah. realize he just dissed you. He right. did the guy that referred you. Right. It's a double loss. Yeah. That's what's so stupid about that. You've got to, when, that's why we'll, let's talk about it. Ask me about referral selling and how important it is. You never know who can help you or hurt you. So why be nasty to people? Four high school kids, 16, 15, yeah. I don't know, 17 yeah. years old. Four customers. And those doctors know every other doctor. So you can be assured that this guy, was either fired or relocated or didn't make any money to another territory. Because the doctor said to everybody, don't deal with this guy. Yeah, that actually was in one of your books that uh, I read. I, I saw that story and uh, I recall, yeah, so, I mean, so powerful. You also talk in your book about, and I'm going to, we're going to jump right to referral selling because I don't want to miss that point. But before we do, um, you always, you also talk about, everyone is always watching. So like the receptionist, I mean, how many people that walk in and are impatient and are dismissive to a receptionist or, you know, or grunt at them, the receptionist in any business, you know, usually has a pretty good relationship and is a valuable, uh, uh, you know, position. It's a first contact, the power they have, but you talk about the story of a receptionist that became an executive vice president. Sure. Uh, so talk to us about like receptionists and anyone in your orbit that you come across. Well, let's just, let's just, say uh, you have a really good company you want to call on. Do you think they're going to put the dumbest, meanest, crappiest person in the world as a receptionist? 
Or are they going to put someone friendly and nice and efficient? Probably the latter. That person has undue influence, undue influence. And oftentimes that's a starting job for kids. Maybe they're out of college, maybe looking for a job and they get a job as a receptionist. It's the first sales call against that supplier or that person coming in. And again, what does it hurt to be nice? She's somebody's sister or he's somebody's father, somebody's uncle. It doesn't hurt to me. I have left more thank you notes, handwritten thank you notes on receptionist desks than all of our audience put together. Yeah. Good for you. I, I, you know, it's something that I really believe in. It seems so simple, but people forget. We just forget like, oh my God, like everyone, you have a chapter. Everyone, somebody's a somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like they're all. I have one of my chapters, one of my other books is tip as if you were the tippy. Okay. So what's a tip today? A tip for the tippers. It could be a hundred thousand dollar wall street bonus. Believe me, that's a tip. Okay. Everybody gets tips, but if you are working, like I tell the kids all the time, uh, we, I take them out to breakfast and I said, and I explained to them, grandchildren, I say, explain to them, this is a gratuity. This is what a tip. I show them because they, and they, of course, I drive them crazy. But I tell them you tip more for the, the, the women or men or wherever who are working for breakfast because you don't do a tip based on the, 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 price, the total price of the bill. You do a tip on the service and everything else. Get up at four o'clock in the morning and come in work. Breakfast is 20 bucks. Dinner's whatever, 80, 100. And the tip based on that would be higher. They work just as hard. So it's I always show them the tip as if you were the tippy. And having been a waiter and all of those kinds of things, you realize that that tip to that, to that waits person, whether it doesn't matter what it – that's why in my new book I'm, I'm telling the kids, always have a bunch of littles in your in your wallet. Littles are ones and fives and tens. You need those right. because you give a $5 bill to somebody. You know, last night my wife and I went to dinner. It was a nice place, a great young, young waiter. And I know they're not making a lot of money because not everybody there. So I did a substantial tip, but I had bought, um, because they didn't have the right stuff, I bought a relatively expensive bottle of wine and I had a glass or two, a glass or two. <laughs> I, and I gave the bottle of wine to the waiter at the end. Yeah. Now, how many people will do that? And how often, how many times will he tell us? Now, he doesn't know me from a bag of potato chips. But that's an impression forever. Forever. And I think so many of us could make more footprints and more statements out there. And And a friend of mine just called me. I had Jack Kemp one time in a national sales meeting. He was a guy that uh, was big. He was, I think, I'm not sure if he's in the Hall of Fame, but NFL quarterback for the Buffalo Bills and a terrific guy and a real. And, and a friend of mine called me and he said that his father had been in a situation where he, he lost a, a deal. And Jack Kemp called him up and he said, Kemp is the only guy that calls me when I've lost. So that's something you, he'll never forget that either. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? The only guy who calls me when I've lost. Everyone calls when you win and when there's something to celebrate. But when things go bad, they don't call you. They don't reach out. They don't support, you know, in many cases. Very, very cool. Let's jump in uh, because you brought it up a couple of times and I really want to hear it. Can you talk to us about referral selling? Well, 
in, in, in almost all business-to-business selling, your customers are your most important asset. So referral selling is the magic of, of generating fees and generating customers. So, and here's the money magic. If you ask 100 people for a referral, 60% will give you a referral so that they know somebody in the market and whatever. Of that 60%, about 75% will be qualified. So the math comes down, and that's why you got to ask a lot of people. Math comes down basically that for every 10 referrals, depending on who you ask and so forth, you'll end up with three three to four sales. And you got to have more than 10 to make it happen. But referral selling is unbelievable. A lot of people don't ask, salespeople don't ask for referrals because they're afraid they're going to get rejected. But the magic of it is that people who are asked for referrals are flattered. They think, oh, this guy thinks I got some influence. And so consequently, going back to your boat story, Gary, when your friend referred you to this other guy, in order to reject you, he has to reject the referring person first. So getting a referral is so powerful because the customer has to reject, as your guy did, he didn't do it obliquely, but he did it. To, he re, to reject the seller is to reject the referring person. Very hard to do. Referral selling is magic selling. And too many salespeople believe that re, asking for a referral is a, a tough thing to do. It's not. People love to do it. Yeah, and especially when they've already had a relationship with you, you know, yeah. Um, listen, if you're on here today and you're uh, any of these points are resonating, uh, do us a favor and give us a, a thumbs up on the uh, Facebook chat. Uh, if you like uh, something that you're hearing, it uh, helps us spread the word. Um, in, in, incredible. I want to I wanna get to dollarization because, as I said, I think it's the number one strategy that resonated with me over the years. Um, and it needs to be done with every relationship, every client relationship that we have. Um, and, and dollarizing, and I'll just sort of like, you know, set the stage for those listening dollarizing is, um, let's say when you have two products, you have, you know, um, a mortgage rate with one of our clients and the customer, you know, is dealing to a, is dealing with another mortgage company and, uh, the customer has contacted you. So clearly they're interested. There's, you know, they're looking for a mortgage, uh, but they want to evaluate the difference of the two products. Uh, whether it's from the bank to another broker or bank to you or whatever it happens to be. So we have to help those clients evaluate the true cost of the difference. And I know Jeffrey's going to just talk about this. And then he has six steps for dollarizing. And I'm going to actually read out each step and just have them make a point on it. So maybe just go and just give us the overall theory of dollarizing and what it means so everyone can understand it. Well, Customers buy for two reasons, to solve a problem or to feel good. Now, in a consumer product like buying a sweater, the problem might be I'm freezing, so I need a sweater. The feel good might be I want to look great for this dance or something. But in things that – and the calculus on that changes. But in terms of business to business or something to do with serious money, and that could be a consumer product as well, like putting in an alarm system or something. The solving the problem 
is, is only, there's only three solutions. Reduce your cost or eliminate your cost to increase your gross margin sales or to avoid a catastrophic event. Those are the only three things. They manifest themselves a million ways. So price and price differential is just part and the, and the modest part, usually 7% or less than the cost of doing something. So the salesman's job is to calculate the value the customer will get from the services they provide. Conversely, calculate the cost consequences of not going with you. So what you do is you dollarize the benefits you supply the customer. Like, for example, for example, let's say, <clears throat> excuse me, there are two mortgages and one guy is, is a few points higher or whatever, a little bit higher. But the but the, the lower priced mortgage may have codicils in the mortgage that come back and haunt the buyer. Like you got to pay off X amount in five years or something. Payment penalties, interest rate differential, all those costs that we understand that consumers don't. Right. And, and that's right. And so the, customer, the salesperson has to be able to dollarize the difference between 1% and 2%. Dollarize that difference. That's the premium price you're selling. And if your dollarized value is different, better, which it almost always is, and you appeal to the customer's feel good, you're going to win those deals 75% of the time. Mm. Selling on price is a fool's errand, okay? I can't tell you how many times. Uh, at Fox and Company and now Fox Business Advisor, been up, guy says to me, you know, Jeffrey, we talked to so-and-so and, and they're, you know, their their prices are $20,000 lower than yours. I go, yeah, so? What do I care? I mean, our, I said, can I tell you why we're, we're not the, why we're not the lowest priced product? The lowest priced product is zero. Okay, so, if, if you're going to buy, you know, two hammers and the one is zero, I mean, it's the whole point is what is the value the customer gets from your service? So, for example, let's say it's, it's a mortgage and you can provide that mortgage at a, a slightly higher interest rate, but you don't have all the codicils and paybacks and you can get the guy the mortgage in a week and the other guy is going to go through the bankers people and it's four weeks. What is the cost of waiting three extra weeks? There's a value to that. So everybody on who's watching this has to understand, what value do you bring to the customer? Are you faster? Are you smarter? Can you eliminate uh, downstream costs? Can you articulate those to the customer? And then when you actually calculate the difference over a 15-year mortgage or 20-year, whatever that is, that small little percent is nothing nothing on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. uh, we've done some work with some of the largest uh, financiers of multifamily housing in the United States. And we've done, the, we did the research and we've called a lot of, a lot of the, the customers. How many customers do you think remembered the interest rate <laughs> they paid? Not, we oh. have this conversation like one, it, 
Zero. Never. Right. They'll go, I don't know what my rate was or what I paid. Like, they have no idea. But they remember the post-service. They remember the guy said, oh, yeah, we're good. And then they never showed up. And our insurance rates went through the roof and, you know, all that jazz. So people have to understand the value they have and the value they bring to the customer. Price is and it's not just price. It's the differential price. Right. So I'm going to make a point on that and sort of translate it for, for the Canadian space here. So as an example, most customers that are, you know, are, are, are coming back to you and saying somebody else has a lower rate and I have to go with them because it's the lower rate. Most customers don't know the true cost between 1.99 and 2.4. They don't know. They've never done the math. They don't know that it might cost them $6 a month over the term of that mortgage. Inconsequential. And they also don't know that maybe by getting that mortgage at where they got it before, maybe at one of the local banks or another mortgage company, that maybe that's a collateral mortgage where they're not only getting, you know, where it's actually, you know, it's wrapped on, on, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a very uh, a fulsome mortgage that wraps everything up. They don't know about IRD in the event that something happens, you know, three years later and they have to get out and they're going to pay the interest rate uh, differential or the, the um, you know, the cost to break. And I'm speaking for the consumer that might be listening as well. They don't understand the true cost of breaking that mortgage. So the difference between getting, you know, a mortgage that was maybe a few basis points higher could only be a few dollars a month. But more importantly, in the event that they have to pay it out early, there could be a 15 or $20,000 penalty, which actually makes the true effective rate, you know, um, 15% or 14% or 12%. And, you know, it's a crazy, it's, it's, it's absolutely crazy that we don't say, and whether you're negotiating, whether your rates a few points higher or a few points lower, here is the dollarized amount that'll cost you per month, per year, per five-year term, and per 25-year amortization. Right. Now, when you calculate it and lay it out, it helps that decision-making ability. Well, and, and also if you do that and relate it to something, like say, let's say, and everybody out here, everybody watching, get your calculators out. On a 20-year mortgage, I don't know what the, uh, a $300,000 20-year mortgage, what's the difference between 1.99 and 2.04. Quick, quick, quick. Because you got your calculators out, right? You know, boom, boom, boom. All right, now divide that by 20 years times 12, 240, or 20 years times 52, whatever number that is. Divide that difference. What's your number? That's the number you got to show your customer. So, Mr. Customer, let's really talk about your rate. The difference point, what do you, can I help you calculate that? Yeah. Okay, it's $14 a month. It's a 